Welcome to Sights and Sounds, a yearly podcast series that features leading scholars and experts discussing some of New York City's most important historic places and institutions. I'm your host, Peter Christian Eigner, director of the Gotham Center for New York City History, which produces the show each fall for Open House New York Weekend. In this episode, Ayasha Garin talks about resilient Edgemere, a land use plan recently approved by New York City's legislature that will rezone 166 acres in this low-income neighborhood of the Rockaways in southern Queens. The initiative is part of a larger strategic plan New York developed after Hurricane Sandy devastated the city in 2012. Sandy was the second most costly hurricane in the history of the U.S. Atlantic, flooding nearly 450,000 homes and businesses in the five boroughs. And New York is sure to be hit again since it is an ocean-lying archipelago and efforts to stop global warming remain anemic. In the future ahead, it will be the Rockaways which take the brunt of this human and physical devastation in New York, since it is the largest urban sand strip in America. But the government's plan for resilience is also a revealing test case for how we intend to face rising temperatures and the vicious hydrological cycle it has unleashed. While many environmentalists advocate managed coastal retreat around the world, more powerful constituencies have been demanding expanded investments and have often carried the day. Developers are eager to build just as low, middle, and high-income residents are unwilling to leave. Caught between these pressures, New York's government has continued to extensively dredge sand and other landfill to rebuild the Rockaways and other neighborhoods hit by Sandy to ostensibly protect against the larger hurricanes coming our way. Here, Ayasha Garin reminds us that New York's first inhabitants never inhabited the city's waterfront for this very reason, and also that visionary development schemes have defined this area of New York City beachland from its earliest days. While recounting this often surprising history, Garin, an interdisciplinary scholar at the University of British Columbia, takes us into the details of resilient Edgemere and the predicament now facing all coastal cities, especially low-income neighborhoods in New York's flood zone, like Edgemere. To hear the rest of this series, visit us at gothamcenter.org or find us wherever you get podcasts. Thanks for listening. The first night I moved to New York City, I took the A train an hour south through Brooklyn, over the stilted tracks of the IND Rockaway Line, and across the wide expanse of Jamaica Bay. I arrived to the elevated 59th Street Station on the border of Rockaway's Arvern and Edgemere neighborhoods, and then I walked north to Marina 59. 23 artists had transformed old docks and junk boats to create the Botel. These were camping-style hotel rooms to rent by the night. But the project also drew locals and visitors from across the city for a program of events and lectures and films, which were projected onto a salvaged whiteboard, propped up on the shoreline. This was September 2012, and the Brooklyn-based nonprofit 596 Acres had just finished a summer residency on the Rockaway Peninsula. Between 2011 and 2018, they mapped and labeled publicly owned vacant land in New York to help communities gain legal control of its use and transformation. On the docks that night, the nonprofit's founder, lawyer Paula Siegel, explained that the Rockaways was home to the majority of all vacant land in Queens. Over 1,900 vacant lots were within blocks of a six-mile beach. After her slideshow was a Q&A session, where locals spoke up and it wasn't just the vacant lots that bothered them about living in Rockaway, they told us about the lack of public health services and local job opportunities and reliable transportation. I followed up with one of these residents, Geoff Rawling. Geoff is an artist, the former president of the Rockaway Artists Alliance, and the captain of a wooden boat, which had painted to resemble a colorful dragon. It was harbored in the marina next to the Botel. He invited me back to the Rockaways to see Jamaica Bay from her roof deck. As I waited for my train back to Brooklyn, 
I looked out onto the vacant lot strewn with trash and at the high-rise NYCHA projects in Ajmer and then over at the large tracts of raised lots where suburban developments were being constructed in Arvern. And I had so many questions. The Rockaway Peninsula is the largest urban sand strip in America. It's bounded north by Rockaway Inlet and Jamaica Bay and to the east by Nassau County and Long Island and to the south and west is the Atlantic Ocean. This means that when hurricanes and other storms spin up the coast, the Rockaway Peninsula receives the brunt of the storm surge. At its thinnest point, Rockaway has only three main avenues. It's possible to walk from the north to the south end in less than five minutes. But the bulk of the peninsula today is actually the result of extensive efforts to fill in Rockaway Inlet and bulkhead the beach against natural erosion. And this requires the constant maintenance of dredge material. In other words, the Rockaways is man-made. So much of the community has been built on landfill. But I didn't know any of this then. I returned to the Rockaways the next few weekends to sail around Jamaica Bay with Geoff and his crew. From the top deck, they pointed out to islands and to waters where former islands had disappeared. I'm grateful to those who shared what they knew about the environmental history of the area with me because I dug through the archives of the New York and Brooklyn Historical Societies for insights into what they didn't know, and this curiosity set off a decade of research into the underground history of the New York waterfront, beginning with the process by which indigenous peoples and ecologies were colonized, and then how coastlines were extended into the sea by landfill, cementing present-day flood zones. On top of this new land, diverse communities have set roots. And one of the first documents that piqued my interest in the environmental histories of the Rockaways was not found in archives. It was a community petition I noticed on the wall of Veggie Island in 2012. At that point, it was the only seller of local and organic vegetables on the peninsula. This petition called for the relocation of more sand to Rockaway Beach and had over 200 signatures. Why is the beach eroding? I remember asking. It just happens naturally, one neighbor replied. And he was right. The sands move by a natural process of littoral drift, whereby ocean currents act like a natural conveyor belt, lifting sands along the southern coast of Long Island and depositing them to the southwestern shore of the Rockaway Peninsula. And this creates a natural bulge by the Breezy Point neighborhood, which is a popular neighborhood for cops and firemen. But in the 20th century, developers also began to control the buildup of sand by placing artificial barriers and relocating dredge deposits. The Army Corps of Engineers and six other federal, state, and local agencies maintained the practice of artificially shoring up the south side of Rockaway Beach. They dredge sands from East Rockaway Inlet regularly, and each dredging cost these government agencies several million dollars in operating costs annually. The Rockaways is part of Long Island's Greater Barrier. So these are islands made up of the natural accretion of these drift sands by the force of ocean currents. And geologically speaking, all barrier islands are impermanent places, but there have been many private and public efforts to widen and split and alter these areas for permanent settlement throughout the past 150 years. Landfill in the Rockaways has been covered by topsoil and asphalt and structural footing to provide foundations for development. For 10,000 years, indigenous peoples served the stewards of these shifting sandy ecologies around Jamaica Bay, filled with an incredible amount of biodiversity. The Canarsie people had villages in current-day Brooklyn, and the Rockaway people lived closest to the peninsula, in current-day Hempstead or East Rockaway. 
They fished and boated and swam across this ancestral and traditional landscape, but they did not build long-term settlements in the dunes. At least archaeologists have found their middens that suggest main villages were set inland. And I mention this because we might heed the wisdom of this decision, informed by thousands of generations of environmental observations and ecological experiences. The name Rockaway is derived from a word in the indigenous Delaware language, Rekinwaki, which means the place of our own people, though some linguists also believe that the name translates to the place of laughing waters from the original Rakana Wahana. The first Europeans in the area would have been fur traders and explorers like Henry Hudson, who anchored the Half Moon in Jamaica Bay in 1609. And by 1690, Far Rockaway was already claimed property of the Cornell family, who went on to found that Ivy League university by the same name. Fast forward to the mid-19th century, an elite beach community had formed on the coastal headlands from the Nassau County line west to Beach 32nd Street. The rest of the Rockaways was still a narrow strip of beach dunes, only half the length of the current peninsula. But Far Rockaway became one of the wealthiest bathing destinations in the world, with the largest seaside hotel in the world at one point. More investors extended railroads into the dunes, and many more hotels were built on landfill surrounding the tracks. By the time the first sewerage and street gas lamps appeared in 1897, Far Rockaway had already begun to run out of building space. During this Gilded Age, the beach area from 32nd Street to 56th Street, which is current day Edgemere, saw one of the most radical attempts to alter the natural topography of the peninsula. Developer Frederick Lancaster's New Venice Company created a canal system to connect Jamaica Bay and Far Rockaway Bays, cutting through the peninsula. It was inspired by Venice, Italy, and it was meant to host gondolas and small boats to navigate tourists through canals. Far Rockaway Bay no longer exists, but it was once the preferred bathing area when Hog Island was still around. Hog Island was another barrier island running parallel to Rockaway, but as I mentioned, barrier islands are geologically impermanent landforms. Residents noticed that Hog Island had progressed westward more than a mile within 50 years, before a great hurricane in 1903 washed Hog Island away for good. And so the new Venice project was a failure because the contractor ended up underbidding the job and disappeared, leaving the future neighborhood of Edgemere a real dugout mess. And when hurricanes hit New York soon after, much of this area was flushed out. And for decades, it suffered from perpetual flooding, and it still does today. This land was and still is the lowest topographical point of the peninsula, with housing sitting lower than the beachfront. Many of the grand hotels, which had rebuilt in 1893, were unable to afford continued maintenance as the ocean swelled in to reclaim space. Still, with the destruction of further hurricanes came opportunities for more development, and speculators knew that while wealthy bathers moved on to further beaches like in the Hamptons, there was still money to be made in the Rockaways as a destination for the middle and working classes. This ushered in the bungalow age of the Rockaways, when small beach homes stretched the length of the peninsula for summer tourists and other seasonal residents, though most of these bungalows were not winterized, and so they sat uninhabited in the colder months of the year. The invention of the suction dredge meant that dredge soil became the main material used to fill fresh and tidal marshes to turn water into valuable real estate. In 1900, the owners of beach residences promoted the area by investing $500,000 to fill 23 acres of the bay. 
And after enlarging this ground area, they built a boulevard along the ocean and a boardwalk 12 blocks long. Rockaway Beach Amusement Park was added to further draw visitors in 1901, a great tourist trap to rival Coney Island, and over 100,000 passengers were carried to and from the great summer resort of Rockaway Beach every day. In this time, one could get from the Rockaways to Manhattan's Penn Station in only 30 minutes by LIRR Transit. However, when the train's trestle over Jamaica Bay burned down in 1950, residents were stranded without transportation for six years. And after this, a trip to the Rockaways required the much longer route that still exists today, which cost visitors twice the price and twice the time, so many chose to vacation elsewhere. Then, the city, desperate for housing for the poor, sent subsidized renters to converted bungalows. City planner Robert Moses had first set his eyes on the Rockaway back in 1939, when he decided to build a shorefront parkway along the ocean of Rockaway Beach and a roadway along the bay to connect his newly completed bridges. This required the extensive filling in of shoreline areas. In 1952, Moses argued that the peninsula had become a resort slum, and he built the first public housing in the Rockaways that year. He designated urban renewal areas, acquired private land through eminent domain, demolished and cleared much of the vernacular bungalow architecture, produced hundreds of acres of vacant land. And at the same time, the city planner was busy demolishing wide sections of the South Bronx and Queens and Brooklyn, too, for his highway and freeway projects. Meanwhile, there was growing demand for a plan to house the displaced. So Moses treated the Rockaways as a space for their management, as well as for the city's elderly and poor. He used federal and state financing to develop dozens of nursing homes on the peninsula, many of which still exist today. Eastern Rockaway, where Marina 59 and Arvard and Edgware neighborhoods are, has changed dramatically since Moses' meddling. Along with its tourism, Eastern Rockaway lost the public amenities of a hospital, a school, and a courthouse by 1962, and by 1975, the Rockaways contained 57% of all low-income housing in Queens though the area housed only 5% of its population. In 1990, one-third of the peninsula was on public assistance, and nearly one-quarter of households had incomes below $10,000. For several decades, the Rockaway sat at the edge of the city, largely neglected by officials and developers. And then, in a striking reversal of the media's portrayal of the Rockaways as a violent ghetto, upmarket publications at the time of my own arrival to New York City seemed committed to painting the new Rockaways a mellow and innovative nature destination. While in the 1990s, articles written about the Rockaways rarely mention the beach, these days, the oceanfront is a central focus. However, its artificial nature is never really admitted. I began this research two months before the peninsula was hit by the worst hurricane in over a century. The storm surge caused major flooding in the Rockaways. It tore the boardwalk off the beach and it smashed it into nearby residences, destroyed over 1,000 structures, and the beach was severely eroded. Buildings were without power, water, heat, and cell phone service for up to six weeks after the storm. Rockaway residents who depended on public transportation had to wait as it was rebuilt over the course of a year. But the community organized and with the help of Occupy Sandy volunteers who worked by the logic of mutual aid, Rockaway rebuilt. Still, Sandy's destruction and subsequent rebuilding have brought changes and challenges. Public-private partnerships have paved the way for an influx of development and with that, more gentrification and displacement. 
residents who grew up under the benign neglect of the 70s, 80s, and 90s are feeling and seeing what activists tried to organize against 10 years ago in their neighborhoods, disaster capitalism. In the late 20th century, the city acquired over 100 lots in Edgemere alone. It acquired even more there after Sandy, buying some residents out of the flood zone. Ten years later, a few of those vacant lots I'd seen projected onto the whiteboard at the Botel are thriving community gardens and farms, like Edgemere Farm and Garden by the Bay. But more of them are new buildings, with some units being sold at close to a million dollars. Public resilience infrastructure budgets have built a new boardwalk, more housing, and relocated sand deposits to make mountains of dredged beached dunes. City partnerships with institutions like MoMA have made the Rockaways, even those eastern neighborhoods like Arvern and Edgemere, attractive again for developers. I returned to Edgemere last week, where the New York City Department of Housing Preservation and Development has resilient Edgemere plans to turn vacant lots into affordable housing and retail and open spaces and to raise the shoreline with more landfill. All the locals I spoke to said the same thing. Over the past decade, more and more real estate has gone up, but people from the Rockaways can't afford it. There are plans for a community land trust in Edgemere, which would consolidate 119 city-owned vacant lots and designate 62 for residential development, two for commercial use, and keeps 55 as open space for flood mitigation. The CLT model would work to make sure that this land stays out of the private market, but it is little more than an idea at the moment, led by community visioning sessions at RISE, the Rockaway Initiative for Sustainability and Equity, and the Collective for Community, Culture, and Environment. But while a community land trust might protect communities from the exploitative housing market, it won't completely protect them from the climate calamity we can expect from the future. Edgemere is home to most of the year-round low-income residents of the Rockaways, and 85% of Edgemere didn't even exist 150 years ago. I've been attending lectures with titles like Sustainable Development After X Disaster for more than a decade now, and when people gather at these events to discuss more resilient futures, everyone is stuck on the question of what to do about low-income populations who live in housing that will not withstand sea level rise and flooding events, but who also don't want to move. Sandy has opened up the same tough questions for New York about whether to rebuild or manage retreat that we saw play out in New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina. And for many Rockaway residents who own their homes or mortgages, packing up their lives and moving away is not a serious option. They'll stay as long as they possibly can. And the New York City Builds It Back program, which uses federal grants to subsidize rebuilding, has allowed many homeowners to do so. What was interesting about the dredging petition I had seen at Veggie Island, I later realized, was that Rockaway residents felt a deep-set sandy beach was their right by settling public housing adjacent to this beach, and by continuing to do so today, it would seem that New York City has dug itself into an open-ended contract with dredging processes to keep this environment settled and livable. Natural disasters are blamed when vulnerable populations are affected, but in reality, this vulnerability to storm surges, it's hardly a natural problem. That so many of the city's poor lives in the flood zone is by design, and it's a matter of climate justice that it was designed for disaster. Meanwhile, in the battle against the physics of rising tides and sinking cities, 
Billions of U.S. military funds per year are being allocated to build out waterfronts around the country, so to appear as if we are not literally losing ground. But we are. To dissenter the human for one moment, it's also important to recognize that dredging digs and scrapes in underwater communities, raiding the seabed of rich nutrients and animal habitats. It counteracts natural entropy, and it has had destructive effects on New York's reef systems and all those people who relied on marine life for their livelihoods. In the long run, we'd better break with the militaristic narrative of humans versus nature and adopt a relational approach to climate change and development that acknowledges the limits of self-sufficiency and our interdependencies within the wider world's ecologies and climate system. Superstorm Sandy killed 44 people and displaced over 40,000 residents in New York City, including Geoff, who now lives in the South Bronx. His dragon boat survived, and it's still docked in Edgemere 10 years later. I asked Geoff recently what he thought of resilience initiatives in Edgemere and elsewhere along the peninsula. He answered that the answer to beach erosion, as observed by generations of people living on Rockaway, is the breakwaters. He used his hand to motion a spiral, explaining how the currents move sands along the coast. His comments reminded me that breakwaters, or jetties, are kind of a relational technology. Done well, breakwaters use the natural force of ocean currents that built the barrier island in the first place to catch more sand and build up the beach. And there are ways to construct breakwaters so that they're far less invasive than to dredge and fill. I'm thinking of Scape's Living Breakwaters project in Staten Island's Tottenville, where oyster texture is being used to protect coastal neighborhoods and educational programs will foster environmental stewardship in the reefs. I do think we need to reconsider the stubborn insistence on shoring up settler colonial boundaries on coastlines which have shifted for centuries. But while territorializing barrier islands might represent peak modern human hubris, as the example of Edgemere's history complicates, New York City has a responsibility to protect the vulnerable residents who've set roots in the sand after the elite classes abandoned the Rockaways. While we're on the point of accountability, the city also owes indigenous peoples and species their land and waters back, which were taken 400 years ago by colonists who invented racial boundaries to better exploit the land and species here. All these things are true. Colonizing the coast has produced these contradictions of care. Thanks for listening to this episode of Sights and Sounds. Be sure to check out the rest of the series, available wherever you find your podcasts, or online at gothamcenter.org, where you can learn more about the rest of our programming here at the Gotham Center for New York City History. I'm your host and the show's producer, Peter Christian Eigner, director of the Gotham Center at the Graduate Center City University of New York. Be safe, everyone, and enjoy Open House New York weekend.